From the hallowed hallways of Shed High School, from WSHDLP Eastport, this is Round the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane from Eastport, Maine. Stay tuned for historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world. And now it's time for another exciting episode of The Adventures of Ted. The scene opens as Ted opens a letter from his Aunt Margaret, who is at her claim shanty in Colorado. Dear Nephew, Well, we haven't hit pay dirt yet. Uncle Ambrose has decided to spend the fall in the Dakotas, migrating from one harvest to another to bring in some money. So I'm here alone with the three little ones. The weather has been hot and dry. The neighbor a mile up the road is running a store out of their place. I sent three-year-old Ambrose Jr. up to fetch cornmeal and instead he comes back with a box of jello. The roof has sprung a leak and there's no ladder. I wish you were here. Wouldn't you like a nice vacation in Colorado? Love, Aunt Margaret. Geez, I owe her at least three letters. Be fun just to show up at her claim shanty out of nowhere's in lieu of a letter. Wouldn't she be surprised? Too bad I can't afford the trip, though. But it sounds like she needs me. Will Ted be able to get himself to the aid of his auntie? We'll find out. But first, here is Gil Phelan with Jack Mashard and his 1939 orchestra. I just got a letter.
Bekymring fyldte helt mit stakkels hjerte, men pludselig stod jeg der med smil om mund. Der kom et brev, som fyldte mig med glæde. Jeg husker endnu hver det ord, du skrev. Jeg føler det, som er du selv til Jeg føler det, som er du selv til stemmer, hver gang jeg kigger i dit kære lille brev. There come at brev, there came a letter. That was Victor Cornelius with Terry Peterson or Hans Orchester. And we started with Gil Phelan, who sang that he just got a letter. He was assisted by Jack Machard and his orchestra in 1939. Now we return to Ted, who wants to visit his poor Aunt Margaret, alone in a claim shanty with three brawling kids. But he can't afford the transportation. He decides to visit his friend, Professor Kingsley. Well, Ted, I think I can help you out of your predicament. You see, I am working on a top-secret new methodology, and I need a human test subject. Well, what would I be doing? I can shrink you down to the size of a postage stamp and mail you to your aunt. Geez, that sounds kind of dangerous. But now the trip will entail only the cost of a first-class postage stamp. Will Ted agree to the unproven and possibly dangerous procedure? We'll know after Texas Jim Robertson and the 1948 Panhandle Punchers sing The Letter I'm Mailing to You. Drifted far apart You will find a broken heart In the letter I'm mailing to you You'll find scattered memories there Of a shattered love affair In the letter I'm mailing to you And when I write about the dreams 
I thought would last for years. Every line I write will be written in tears. Read the postscript and you'll learn there's a prayer for your return in the letter I'm mailing to you. Foot. Oh my, did I do that, do, 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 
Tiny Bradshaw with the 1952 Mailman Sack, before which we heard the letter I'm mailing to you from 1948, Texas Jim Robertson and the Panhandle Punchers. When we left Ted, he was desperate to visit his poor Aunt Margaret at her claim shanty in Colorado. Professor Kingsley has offered to shrink Ted down and use him as a postage stamp so he can be mailed to his aunt. Okay, Professor, I think we should give it a try. Splendid. If you'll just step into the new dehydrationophonic Mark IV minimizer... Yes, that's it. Hey, what's happening? Patience, young Ted. I just need to run you through this special printer, make you look like a real first-class postage stamp, and I'll affix you to this envelope which contains the instructions for your aunt to reconstitute you once you arrive. Now I shall just drop you in the mailbox. Hey, it's dark in here. What adventures await Ted in his life as a first-class letter? Will Aunt Margaret be surprised? Find out after Roosevelt Sykes gives us the 1951 Mailbox Blues.
in the mailbox. That was Leo Matheson or Hans Orchester from Denmark. Before them, in 1951, Roosevelt Sykes singing Mailbox Blues. You recall that Professor Kingsley has shrunk Ted down to a postage stamp, put him on an envelope, and dropped him in the mailbox. Destination? Ted's Aunt Margaret in Colorado. Ted gets picked up by the unsuspecting mailman, and Ted is canceled at the post office. Ka-chunk! Ow! He's then tossed into the back of a Ford Trimotor mail plane. Will Ted freeze to death at the high altitudes? Will he run out of peanuts and soft drinks? Will he have enough legroom? But first, here is Georgia White with the 1941 Mail Plane Blues. <laughs> Oh 
Lionel Hampton and his 1946 orchestra. That was Air Mail Special. This was preceded by the 1941 Mail Plain Blues featuring Georgia White. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We left Ted flying high in a Ford Trimotor Mail Aeroplane. Ted is now the size of a postage stamp and is being mailed to his Aunt Margaret by Professor Kingsley as a scientific experiment. Meanwhile, back at the mine, Aunt Margaret is attempting to wash clothes out in the yard of the claim shanty with a newfangled gasoline-powered washing machine. I wonder why I never hear from Ted. Why, I sent him letter after letter. I've never been so isolated in all my life, except for these darn kids. Will all go as secretly planned? Will Aunt Margaret soon be seeing Ted in person? Will Ted survive his postal adventure? In the meantime, Gene Autry is here with the 1944 at Mail Call Today.
with mail so high and wide Sailing through the wide blue yonder It's that air mail special on the fly Listen to the motors humming See her streaking through the sky Like a bird that's flying homeward It's that air mail special on the fly Thank <laughs> you. 
was Bob Crosby and his 1940 orchestra with Airmail Stomp. Before that, Airmail Special on the fly with Shorty Long in 1947. And the postal packet proceeded with Gene Autry at Mail Call Today from 1944. Ted has been shrunk down to a postage stamp and is being mailed to his Aunt Margaret. The mail plane lands safely. And Ted is tossed on a mail train. Well, maybe I'll just sit right here on this old sack. Ted is temporarily crushed when a hobo sits on the sack of mail. Will Ted make it to Aunt Margaret's claim shanty before being suffocated? Before we find out, here is the Fireball Mail, featuring Roy Acuff and his 1942 Smoky Mountain Boys. Puffin', boy, she makin' time. The old train away, not the rail, rail, rail. 
mountain that you got to climb, bring it in the Georgie mail. Ninety miles an hour and she's gaining speed. Listen to the whistle, morning wail, wail, wail. Got the power, I'll say yes indeed. Bring in a Georgie Driver travel, watch us send the track. All to put that ain't in there in jail, jail, jail. As he got her rolling, watch a ball of jack. Rain in the Georgia mail. Rocking and the reeling, spouting off the steam. But the fireman holds the brakes, don't fail, fail, fail. Curving for the depot, listen to her scream. Bring in a Georgie mail. We heard Charlie Monroe and his 1947 Kentucky Partners bringing in the Georgia Mail. Before that, Roy Acuff and his Smoky Mountain Boys with Fireball Mail. Ted gets a breath of fresh air when the <laughs> sack of mail he's in is removed from the mail train and transferred to a cog railway on a smaller line. He's starting to get hungry and need a shave. Boy, I should have stuffed my gullet before agreeing to Professor Kingsley's new procedure. Will Ted make it before collapsing from hunger? In the meantime, Marion Harris is here waiting for the 1923 evening mail. Down in Jack 
saying he was gonna get me when I get out. Said that he was gonna meet me right at the gate. But brother, he don't know how long he's gotta wait. Cause I'm sitting on the inside, looking at the outside, waiting for the evening mail. Oh, walls and a ceiling, Lordy, what a feeling. Just a mean old low-down jail, separating me from everything but the evening mail. I'm like a ship without a sail. I wrote my one-time mama down in Jacksonville. Said, sweet mama, I'm in jail. Oh, honey, please don't fail me. Hurry up and mail me bail. That's just a year ago. And I'm still on the inside, looking at the outside, waiting for the evening mail. A double dose of the 1923 Waiting for the Evening Mail. First we heard Marion Harris, then Ernest Hare. You'll recall that to save transportation costs, Ted has had Professor Kingsley shrink him to a postage stamp and mail him to his poor Aunt Margaret at her claim shanty in Colorado. When we left Ted, he was in a mail sack on a train. But now Ted has been transferred to a mail wagon for the slow trek via donkey to the claim shanties in the mountains and canyons of Colorado. When Ted is delivered to Aunt Margaret, will she follow the instructions in the letter and add water to reconstitute Ted back to his normal self? Here is Smiley Burnett with the 1950 Jackass Mail. In my dobe cabin in the canyon On the old Apache Trail While well, I'm a-waitin' for your letter To come by jackass mail I ain't heard from you in ages Like a-bein' locked up in a jail And I'm a-needin' right smart your letter To come by jackass mail Can't get out, can't get in Unless to ride that old jazz honk I ain't went, I ain't been I just stayed here and sat and thunk Wish that you'd come back and do the cooking Tired of beans and the coffee stale And I'm a-needin' right smart your letter To come by jackass mail Slippery in a gale And you get that winter catalog By the express jackass mail Put on my barskin overcoat Break the ice on the water pail Start to looking up the canyon brim For the lightning jackass mail Once a day down he comes 
with my snuff and stuff to chew. Feel my heart standing still when there ain't no word from you. Guess there ain't much here for women. Ain't no lights on the patchy trail. But I'm an eating right smart, your letter to come by Jasak That was the 1950s Smiley Burnett, Jackass Mail. We got a letter for ya. Oh, I don't believe it. It's from Ted. It says to take the postage stamp off the letter, put it on the ground, and water it. Well, if it's a seed, it won't have time to grow this year. Maybe I'll just put it aside till planting season next spring. Will Ted be reconstituted before he dies of starvation? Stay tuned while we hear next Fats Waller and his 1937 rhythm. You've been reading my mail. Come out of my mail, yeah! It's as plain as ABC. You've been reading my mail. You've been taking a look in my little black book. And I know you opened up your eyes when you saw my list of sweetie pies. Ah, it killed you. I know you got your big surprise for the trouble you took. Yeah, yeah. You know, you used to say, go away when I talked about romance. But now my pet, you're all upset. You want another chance? Oh, oh, oh. you've been reading the mail. <laughs> oh, no, 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 baby, you need to turn pale. Though I know it's true, I can't be mad. Because it proves to you that I'm not so bad. Once it made you care, I'm so glad. <laughs> You've been reading my mail. I'm... Oh, no, 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 not now. Come out of the next envelope. That was You've Been Reading My Mail, Fats Waller and His Rhythm from 1937. Ted has successfully traveled from his home to his aunt's claim shanty in Colorado in the guise of a first-class letter. But Aunt Margaret is disregarding the instructions for how to reconstitute her nephew from being a postage stamp. Now, little Ambrose, leave Ted's letter alone. Oh, now you've dropped it on the floor. Watch out, your milk don't spill all over it. Oh, Ambrose. 
Oh my word, it's Ted. Can that really be you? Hey, Aunt Margaret. How about some grub? And thus we culminate with a heartwarming reunion between Ted and his aunt, thanks to the scientific acumen of Professor Kingsley. Aunt Margaret needed Ted's help at the claim shanty, but Ted did not have the financial wherewithal to get there. Professor Kingsley, in a first-of-its-kind experiment, turned Ted into a postage stamp and successfully mailed him to Colorado. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. This is Round the World with Cracklin' Jane. And now, with Ted, Aunt Margaret, and the three kids gathered around the hearty dinner table, they turn on the radio to listen to a 1948 episode of Mysterious Traveler, entitled, Death Writes a Letter. So let's listen. presents The Mysterious Traveler. This is The Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, that it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as you hear the story I call... Death writes a letter. My story begins last summer in the townhouse of Martin Drake, a well-known financier. Martin is deep in argument with his older brother, John, as his daughter, Susan, enters the room unnoticed. John, how can you possibly believe in such things? Spiritualism, nonsense is a better word for it. To a skeptic, everything is nonsense. But if you'd seen and heard what I have, you too would believe. Hello, Father. Uncle John. Hello, Susan. Oh, I see you two are up to your old arguments. Well, your father's a very stubborn man, Susan. Well, I may be stubborn, but I'm no fool. Imagine believing in spiritualism, telepathy, and all that Tommy right. I believe in spiritualism, Martin, and that the living can communicate with the dead. And nothing you can say will swerve me from my beliefs. Uncle John, in all these years you've been studying spiritualism, have you ever been able to communicate with Aunt Judith? No, Susan, I haven't. But there have been times late at night when I've all but broken through the barrier that separates us. Oh, I give up. There's no use in arguing with a man who has an obsession. Oh, that's fine, Father. Now the three of us can go into supper. Oh, I'm sorry, Susan, but I can't stay for supper. Oh, why not? I have an appointment with an honorary critic. A what? An honorary critic, a man who's an interpreter of dreams. John, good grief, don't tell me you believe in that, too. Why not, Martin? For years, psychoanalysts have interpreted dreams in an effort to help their patients. The subconscious minds of the living can sometimes bridge the vast gap of death. Now, John, I'm warning you, if you don't give up this obsession of yours, there's no telling how you'll end. I know you think I'm cracked, that all the years I've spent studying spiritualism have been wasted, but you're wrong. The living and the dead can communicate with each other, and someday you'll realize I'm right. Now, I really must be going or I'll be late. Well, Uncle John, you will drive up to the country with Father this weekend, won't you? 
Well, are you opening the summer place? Yes, I'm driving up tomorrow to open the house and engage the servants. Well, I'll try my best to join your father this weekend. Oh, that's fine. Don't bother showing me the door. Good night. Good night, Uncle John. Good night. To think that anyone in this day and age still believes in spiritualism, particularly your Uncle John, it's incredible. I don't know, Father. Uncle John seems so sure of himself that sometimes I feel he may be right. Oh, Susan, that's nonsense. But look, Father, if it's all nonsense, why should Uncle John believe in it? You yourself have often said he's the most brilliant man you know. And he is. It's just that, well, we all have our eccentricities and John's is spiritualism. Until his wife died five years ago, he was just as sane as you or I. No living person has ever communicated with the dead, and none ever will. Come in, dear. Come in. Oh, I'm sorry uh, if I woke you, Father. Oh, it's all right. What time is it? It's just 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock? Well, what are you doing up and dressed so early? I'm driving up to the country to open our summer place. Have you forgotten, Father? Oh, yes, so you are. Oh, didn't you sleep well last night, Father? There's circles under your eyes. No, I spent a very poor night. I had a, a nightmare, but I can't seem to remember what it was about. Oh, I'm sorry, Father. Stanley, is there anything I can get you? No, I'll be all right. You run along. Oh, I need the keys to the car. Oh, yes, you'll find them over there on my desk. And uh, if you need any money, help yourself. Oh, thank you, Father, but I have enough money. Have you found the keys? Oh, yes, here they are. Oh, do you want me to mail this letter on your desk? What letter? Well, this one. It isn't addressed. All that's written on the envelope is one word. Urgent. Urgent? Yes, and it's in your handwriting, see? Why, I never wrote that. But, Father, it is your handwriting. <laughs> Look, there are ink stains on your fingers. You must have written it before you went to bed. But I tell you, I didn't. Let me see that letter. Yes, that's my handwriting, all right. Oh, Father, I'm leaving now. I want to get there by noon. Uh, what? Oh, yes, uh, goodbye, dear. Take care of yourself. I will, darling. Bye. Urgent. And it's my handwriting, all right. But for the life of me, I can't remember. Well, let's see. Dear Martin. What the devil? A letter in my own handwriting addressed to me. Dear Martin. No. No, this can't be. It can't. Martin, is anything wrong? I came as quickly as I could. You sounded so upset over the phone. Dr. Warren, I'm, I'm afraid my mind is giving way. You, Martin? You're the last person in the world to become unbalanced. Well, that's what I thought until I read this letter. Letter? Yes, and it's in my handwriting, so I must have written it. I'm afraid I don't understand. When I woke up an hour ago, this letter was on my desk. I could see it was my handwriting, and yet I don't remember having written it. You don't remember having written it? No, and yet I must have. There are still ink stains on my fingers. <laughs> Martin, none of this makes sense. Yes, I know. What's in the letter? I'll read it to you. Dear Martin... Uh, wait a minute. You mean it's in your handwriting, but but it's addressed to you? Yes, but it's signed with the name of my brother, John. Signed by John, in your writing? Exactly. Y you better read me that letter. I, I uh, Maybe then I can understand this. Dear Martin, this letter will undoubtedly give you quite a shock. 
But, but after, after you finish reading it, I'm quite sure you'll understand why it was written. After I left Susan and you a few hours ago, I went to keep my appointment with the dream interpreter I'd spoken to you about. It was shortly before midnight that I returned to my home. As usual, I found Martha and Paul waiting up for me. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. John. Paul, Martha, what are you doing up so late? I told you never to wait up for me after ten o'clock. Well, we worry about you. You know what the doctor said about your heart. You should have been in bed an hour ago. You both treat me as though I were a six-year-old. And sometimes you act like one. Well, I have a glass of warm milk for you in the pantry. I don't want any milk. It's good for you. Here, let me have your coat. Oh, thank you, Paul. <sighs> it feels good to be home, sitting in the chair before the fire. Here's your warm milk, Mr. John, and I want you to drink it down without any arguments. After all, it's for your own good. Here, take... Mr. John? Mr. John? Martha, what's wrong? Oh, oh. Mr. John. Mr. John. Mr. John, answer me. He, he's dead. Oh. Now, please, Martha, please, you mustn't cry. The end came very quickly, peacefully. Not there, Martha, there. It came as quite a shock, Martin, hearing myself declared dead. But as I saw my earthly body sitting in the armchair by the fireplace, I knew it was true. John Drake was dead. I wanted to comfort Paul and Martha, make them understand that only the body of John Drake was dead, that the spirit would live forever. I wanted to tell them that I was indescribably happy, for I knew without knowing how that on the following day I should be reunited with my dear wife, Judith. Then my thoughts turned to you, Martin. And in one brief moment, I saw your past, your present, and your future. Your future left me horrified, Martin, for in it I saw unhappiness. Unhappiness and death. I felt that somehow I had to warn you of what the future held. I left the house I had died in and went to your home. The radio was playing. You were sitting in an easy chair, reading a book, unaware of what the future held for you. Martin! Martin, you must listen to me! Martin, look up from that book you're reading! You must! But I couldn't reach you with my words. There was too great a distance between us. I stood by, helpless to aid you. A few minutes later, you yawned, closed the book, and turned off the radio. A half hour later, you were in bed and asleep. And then, then I suddenly had hope. I couldn't reach you while you were awake, Martin, but while you slept, perhaps I could reach your subconscious, warn you about the future. I saw your desk with writing paper on it, and I knew that was the only way to reach you. I spoke softly, trying to reach your subconscious. Martin, Martin, listen to me. This is John. You must hear me, for it's a matter of life and death. You must do exactly as I say. I want you to get out of bed. That's it. Throw back the covers. Now put your feet on the floor. Martin, do as I say. That's right. Now go to your desk. That's fine. Now sit down. That's it. Pick up the pen that's on the desk. Martin, pick up the pen. That's right. 
You picked up the pen and began to write as I dictated. Everything up to this point explains how this letter was written. And now, the reason for it. In looking into the future, I was horrified to see that Susan would die the night of June 7th, 1947, at exactly 6 o'clock. That means you must act swiftly, Martin, for she has less than 24 hours to live. If you don't, she will be found frozen to death. As for yourself, I see you dying as the result of an accident in a small, roughly furnished room. In this room is a desk calendar, and the date it shows as you lie dying is September 3rd, 1947. Martin, Martin the, love the love I bear you and your, your daughter, daughter has reached out from, from another, another world to warn you against, against the future. I pray that you will act upon this information and save yourselves. Your brother, John. That's the most extraordinary letter I ever heard. Well, what do you make of it, Doctor? You sure this is... Your handwriting? Certain of it. And then there are these ink stains on my fingers. Yes. It's amazing. It's obvious that I wrote this letter last night in my sleep. What upsets me is the content of the letter. The things I wrote are so fantastic that I'm afraid I may be losing my mind. No. I'm quite sure you're sane, Martin. Well, then how do you account for my writing such a fantastic letter even in my sleep? Has it occurred to you that this fantastic letter, as you call it, May not be fantastic. What? Now, Henry, you're not trying to tell me that you believe that this letter is true. That my brother John did die last night and came here to... Surely you don't believe in all that, Tommy Rot. Then your explanation for that letter is that you wrote it while having a nightmare? Well, of course. What other answer could there be? It's ridiculous to think that you, a man of science, could attach any credence to this letter even for a moment. You amaze me. There have been many phenomena in history. Phenomena that never could be explained. Not even by science. Oh, you're almost as bad as my brother. Soon you'll be telling me that you, too, believe in spiritualism. Have you called up your brother this morning? Why, no. Why should I have? Oh, you think he may have died last night as he wrote me in this letter? <laughs> doctor, I, I think you'd better see a doctor. I suggest you call your brother. Well, all right, I will, just to show you what a fool you are for believing even for a moment that there can be anything to this letter. Why, when John was here last night, he looked just as healthy as... Uh, uh, hello, uh, Paul, uh, this is Mr. Drake. Is my brother there? The what? Last night? After he returned home? I... I see. Uh, uh, thank you, Paul. He is dead, isn't he? Yes. Paul said that he died last night. If your brother died last night, then this letter must have been written by him through your subconscious after... after... No, 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 that can't be. What you're saying is madness. The dead can't communicate with the living. But in this letter, your brother speaks of his death last night and goes on to tell... My brother couldn't have written that letter through my subconscious. Such things can't happen. I wish I felt as certain as you do. What about this part of the letter? In looking into the future, I was horrified to see that Susan would die the night of June 7th, 1947, at exactly 6 o'clock in the evening. 
That means you must act swiftly, Martin, for she has less than 12 hours to live. If you don't, she'll be found frozen to death. And that proves how fantastic the whole letter is. Today is June 7th, and outside it's like summer. How could Susan possibly be frozen to death? I don't know, Martin. But if Susan were my daughter, I think I'd want to be with her tonight at 6 o'clock. You'd never be able to forgive yourself if anything were to happen to her. I'll go with you if you like. Oh, very well. But mind you, I still don't believe that John wrote this letter through my subconscious. What time is it, Henry? It's a few minutes after six. If we hadn't had the breakdown, we'd have been there hours ago. Uh, How much further is it? As soon as we reach the top of this hill, you'll be able to see it. I wish we'd reached the house before six. Now, surely you don't believe what that letter says. How could Susan possibly freeze to death? Why, it's a warm evening. It's like summer. Yes, I know, but just the same, I wish we'd arrived sooner. Look, you can see the house now, down there in the valley. Susan's probably getting dinner. And we'll certainly look like a pair of fools coming up here because of that ridiculous letter. I hope you're right. She isn't? No. Could she be in the village or a visiting friend? No, no, no. You're forgetting her car is parked in front of the house. Yeah, that's right. Well, where can she be? I'm afraid I can't answer that. I'll search the second and third floors while you search this floor in the cellar. She must be someplace in the house. Henry, where are you? Down in the cellar, Martin. I searched every room on the second and third floor, but I couldn't find a sign of her. I found her, Martin. You found her? Well, where is she? Susan. You must prepare yourself for a shock. Shock? Martin, listen to me. I found her in the cold storage room, frozen to death. No, no. She can't be dead. But she is, Martin. From what I could make out, she turned on the freezing system full and then went inside to store some meats. Probably right after she got here. While she was in there, the door slammed shut. Locked her in. Oh, Susan. If only I'd gotten here in time. Martin, for weeks now you've been like this. Now you must get hold of yourself. You'll break down. You did everything you could to save Susan. No, no, that's just it. I didn't. John reached me from beyond the grave to warn me about the future, but I merely laughed. Had I heeded his letter, Susan would be alive today. But, Martin, you did try to get there in time. It wasn't your fault the car broke down. Yes, but if I'd believed in the letter, I'd have hired another car and kept going instead of waiting for my car to be repaired. You know, I've been thinking... Perhaps it was meant that your car should break down. That you should arrive too late to save Susan. What? Perhaps... It was wrong of John to break through the barrier that separates the living from the dead and warn you of the future. How could it be wrong if it would have saved Susan? Perhaps it was ordained that Susan was to die when she did. And that's why the car broke down. No, 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 no. I could have saved her if only I'd hired another car and rushed on to my country home. But at least now I can heed John's warning and save my own life. Save your own life? Yes. Have you forgotten the other part of the letter? As for yourself, Martin, I see you dying as the result of an accident in a small, roughly furnished room 
in this room is a desk calendar, and the date it shows as you lie dying is September 3rd, 1947. Today is August 1st. That means I have less than five weeks to live. Unless I can save myself. Well, how can you save yourself, Martin? What's meant to be will be. Not if I'm clever enough to take advantage of the information in this letter. Dying as a result of an accident in a small, roughly furnished room. Yes, but if John had only told me what kind of an accident it was meant to be. Well, nevertheless, come what may, I'm not going to die on September 3rd. Just a minute. Hey, Martin, what, what's going on? I mean, what, what's the meaning of all those men around the house? Why, why was I searched before I entered the room? Henry, do you know what the date is? Well, yes, it's September 2nd. Yes, and in a few minutes it will be midnight, and then it will be September 3rd. Oh, yes, that's right. The letter. In the letter, John warns me that I shall die of an accident in a small, roughly furnished room. Well, you'd hardly call this drawing room that, would you? No, I wouldn't. It's my intention to remain in this room until to, until tomorrow is past. Now, Henry, would you mind keeping me company for the next 24 hours? No, Martin, not at all. See, I've taken every possible precaution to prevent an accident from occurring. I've removed everything from this room but that sofa, chair, and table. And I have food in here to last me for several days. I have guards around this house and outside this room to prevent anyone from entering for the next 24 hours. It certainly sounds as though you've taken every precaution. Yes, I've... I've done everything I could think of. Henry, do you hear that? It's just midnight. September 3rd is here. Martin, will you stop looking at your watch every other second? I can't help it. One more minute and it'll be midnight. And when the clock in the hallway strikes, it'll be September 4th. Yes, Martin, yes. Now, why don't you sit down and take it easy? How can I at a time like this? Martin, you must calm down. Think of your heart. Only 30 seconds more, Henry. 30 seconds. Martin, you're as white as a sheet. Well, who wouldn't be? I'm cheating death. I'm going to live. Live, do you hear? Easy there now. I can't have a feeling it would have been better if John hadn't warned you about the future. No, no, don't say that. If he hadn't, I'd have been dead by now. That let... Henry, do you hear that? It's midnight. And I'm still alive. Alive. For some weeks, Martin Drake was a sick man as the result of the strain he'd undergone. But with the coming of fall, he was well on the road to recovery. It was in late autumn that he invited Dr. Warren to go hunting with him in Maine. Day after day, the two men, with their guide, roamed the woods. The exercise and outdoor life did Martin a world of good, and he was soon his former self, both physically and mentally. It seems to be getting much colder, doesn't it? Yes, it uh, feels very much like snow. I think it'll hold off for a while yet. Would you like to do a little more hunting, Mr. Drake? we still got a couple of hours till it gets dark. Yes, I wouldn't mind. How about you, Henry? Well, by all means. Maybe we'll come across that, that buck we spotted this morning. Yes, he was a big fellow. Uh, where'd I put my rifle? Uh, here it is, Mr. Drake, under the tree. Oh, yes, so it is. Here's your rifle, Doc. Right. This rifle of mine... Oh. Martin, what happened? Good grief, he shot himself, Doc. Martin, are you badly hurt? gun went off when I picked it up on my shoulder. Easy now. Well, I have a look at it. Oh. Is it bad, Doc? Oh. No, not bad. 
We must get him to a shelter and stop this bleeding. Uh, Ed Tolliver's place about a quarter of a mile from here, Doctor. All right, give me a hand. we got to get him there at once. Put him down gently on the cot. Okay. Easy now. That's it. How is he, Doc? Think he'll pull through? Yeah, of course. He just fainted from the pain and the loss of blood. Now, let's see. Mm, sure is a nasty wound. Yeah. Fortunately, the bullet went on through his shoulder. I won't have to probe for it. Oh. What are you going to do to him, Doc? Well, first I'll have Henry, to... Uh, where, where am I? Now, just lie still, Martin. We brought you to this shack where I can fit you up. Oh, my shoulder hurts. It'll be all right now once I get the bullet wound cleaned up. Pete, put my sure. medical bag on this desk here. Open it, will you? Sure, Doc. Will you have to probe for the bullet? No. Fortunately, it went right through. All I have to do is clean the wound. It may hurt a bit, Martin. That's all right, Henry. Go ahead. Uh, maybe you'd better turn your face away from me so you won't see what I'm doing. Sometimes it's easier that way. Concentrate on the desk over there, huh? All right. Pete, hand me that tube of sulfur powder. Yep. Also the... Henry! What is it, Martin? That calendar. What calendar? There on the desk. Don't you see? Yes. Do you see what date it has? September 3rd. Well, I guess that's the day Ed Tolliver went back to the city. September 3rd! Martin, you mustn't get excited. Do you remember what the letter said? Henry, this is it. Oh, Martin, no. You'll be all right. If only you'll count. Henry, that's it. This room is small, roughly furnished. And the desk calendar does show September 3rd, 1947. Henry, it's all as John said it would be. I haven't seen a death. He's here in this room. He's come to take me. He's come to... Doc, what's wrong? He's dead. Dead? But it was only a shoulder wound. You said he'd pull through. Yes, but I was wrong. Shock killed him. I guess nothing can save a man when it's ordained he die. Death came to Martin Drake as it was foredoomed to come. <laughs> Martin and Susan, wasn't it? Even John Drake's warning from another world couldn't save them, which seems to prove that when your time comes, nothing you can do can change it, so you might as well not worry about it. So I did know of a man who managed to outwit death for several hundred years, then one day he was... Oh, you'll have to get off here. I'm sorry. But I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at this time. You have
have just heard The Mysterious Traveler, a series of dramas of the strange and terrifying. In today's story, all the characters were fictional, and any resemblance to the name of an actual person living or dead was purely coincidental. In the cast were Maurice Tarplin, Roger DeCoven, Eric Dressler, and Bryna Rayburn. Original music was played by Paul Taubman. The Mysterious Traveler is written, produced, and directed by Robert J. Arthur and David Cogan. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We have just heard a 1948 episode of Mysterious Traveler, entitled Death Writes a Letter. Now, stay tuned for a 1951 episode of the radio version of Dragnet. The story is called The Big Mailman. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a forgery detail. A United States postal inspector comes to your office. You've received the same complaints he has. Somebody is stealing mail in your city. Your job? Help get him. documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, March 3rd. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of forgery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Harry Elliott. My name's Friday. It was 7.45 a.m. when I got to room 29. Forgery detail. Morning, Joe. Hi, Ben. Sure coming down out there. Mm. Yeah? Look at this coat. It's soaking wet. Is that the same trench coat, that English one? Yeah. Ever since I had it cleaned, it seems to soak up the water a little more. Does it leak? Oh, no. It just seems to take on a little more water. Keeps me dry. Got something to show you, Joe. Yeah? Remember that old raincoat of mine used to leak up through the seams over the shoulders? Oh, yeah, sure. Take a look at this. What do you got there? Pretty neat, huh? Well, yeah, what is it? My new raincoat. Hmm. Never know, would you? It's small, compact, the whole thing's hardly any bigger than a pack of cigarettes. Not bad, huh? Yeah. What'd you get it? Wife bought it for me. Amy says it's regular full-size raincoat, size 40 long. Amy says? So didn't you try it on? Oh, no, you know how they make something like this. It's made out of plastic, size isn't too important. Mm-hmm. Just plain coat. Slipped right on over your suit, just like any other raincoat. I know it'll fit. You haven't worn it yet, huh? No, it hadn't started to rain when I left on. Mm-hmm. Could I see that? Sure. Real compact, isn't it? Now, something like this is really practical. Yeah, uh-huh. Little packages like that you carry it around with you all the time. Never take up any room at all. Yeah. What's it look like? Just like that little pouch there. Same stuff. It's transparent, you know, regular plastic. Well, could we look at it inside, I mean? Okay, let's see. Well, here, you better go. Yeah, Okay. Well, just unzip it here. Mm-hmm. Sure is compact, isn't it? Yeah. There we go. Look there, Joe. All folded up nice and neat. Yeah. Sure is lightweight, too. Plastic's great, isn't it? Fine, yeah. There we go. Full-size raincoat. See, eh? Fits fine. 
Never know a full-size coat would go in a thing like that little pouch there, would you? It's no bigger than a tobacco pouch. Yeah, that's pretty good. You ought to try it on, Joe. Never know you had anything on. Sure is light and nice. Yeah, I can see. Now, now we just put it back in the pouch until I'm ready for it. Let's see now. Collar goes up. Front folds in like this. No. No. No, that isn't right. Goes this way. Let's put it down on the table. That'll be better. Yeah. Yeah, that's better. Now, here we go. Now, we fold the arms in here. Now, the bottom part comes up this way. Now, we fold it over and again. Easy, isn't it? Just follow the crease marks in your home, Joe. Yeah. Now, if you'll hand me that little pouch, Joe. Oh, yeah. Here you go. Oh, thank you. Now, no, I guess that's too big. Well, we'll make one more fold, guys. Okay? Yeah. Well, it's small enough this way, but it's too fat, isn't it? You better watch it there. You're going to tear that little sack. That's funny. I folded right over the old creases there. Too fat, isn't it? Yeah. Well, couldn't you just carry it in your pocket like that without the pouch? Sure, that's it. I'll slip it in my coat pocket. No. No, that won't do, Joe. It bulges right out. It's kind of springy. It jumps out. It's like a piece of bungee silk. Yeah, it seems to. Well, it's still lightweight and easy to handle. Sure. Plenty easy to carry just like that anyway. Yeah. Well-made little pouch there. Seems a shame not to be able to use it. You smoke a pipe? No, you know that. Just cigarette. Yeah, I'll find some use for it. Probably a hundred things a fellow could use a little pouch like this for if he could just think of them right off. Yeah, that's right. Riley, Romero, you want to step in here for a minute? Right, Kim. You fellas know Inspector Smith, Post Office Department? Sure, how are you? Romero? Good to see you, Leo. How you doing, Joe? Sit down, won't you? Thank you. Thanks very much. Inspector Smith's over here on that mail thief case that we've been working on. Oh, yeah. Did you receive those reports we sent over to you yesterday? No, I haven't been to the office yet. Came straight over here. Well, burglary turned it over to us yesterday afternoon. Ben and I ran it down. Seems to us like it might fit in somewhere here. Miller and Ashton have probably got your reports now. I was just going to call in. You mind filling me in on it? Department house over on Alvarado. Landlady reported a theft of part of a mailbox out there. Yeah, somebody stole a master panel off the front of the community mailbox at the apartment house. Figure it must have happened sometime during the night. Oh, yeah, I believe we got something on that, too. A postman on the route reported it. That's how he's getting into the mailbox. He steals the front panel, makes a key for himself, and then on, he's in business. Smart guy like we're after could put a key like that to good use. It fit a great many different mailboxes around town. Yeah, it's the same M.O. We've been on this guy for a long time. He pulled the same thing down in San Diego. was knocking down about $2,000 a month. Then he laid out. Now he's at it again up here in L.A. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, we've been getting reports of the thefts and the passing of the checks about ten days ago. Yeah, I know. We've got five checks passed by this same thief, according to handwriting analysis. We know it's the same guy. Talk to the victims and the bank tellers. Description of the guy seems to tally with what you people have on him. Yeah. There's just one thing we haven't been able to piece out yet. What's that, Joe? When he steals a check, how does he know what bank to pass it on? Well, I think we got the answer to that one. Well, let's say that he... Steals a letter. We know he doesn't only hit the community mailboxes. Sometimes he goes to a private residence, fishes the letters right out of the mail slots in that case. Yeah, he's got some kind of a gimmick he gets down in those slots with. That's what we figure, Leo. But we'll say after he's got a letter with a check in it. Now, it's easy enough for a good forger to put an endorsement on it, but how does he know what branch of the bank to pass it on? Well, at some time or other, he's stealing bank statements as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's just lucky. At the time he steals a check, there's other mail in the box, too. The victim's bank statements. Well, as far as that goes, I suppose he's stolen more than once from the same party. He could probably get away with bank statements easy. Well, that's it. 
People never seem to report anything missing in the mails until weeks after it's happened. It's easy to see why. They're not sure anything's wrong until they wait several days. They don't want to bother us in the case of anything routine like monthly bank statements. And in the case of a check, well, sometimes it's from a relative or someone who owes them money and they don't want to embarrass them by writing or calling to find out about it. And I suppose in the case of anything like a dividend check, we got a couple of those, Leo. Mm -hmm. The people who lose them just don't think it's time for them to arrive yet, so they just wait, huh? That's it. And that's why he's been so successful. Plus the fact that it takes about a week for any kind of check to be processed through central clearing at any bank, and then, too, the bank wouldn't necessarily know that anything was wrong at that time. Until the bank receives a complaint from the party who missed the check, they couldn't have any way of knowing that anything was wrong. That's right. Tell them what you were telling me this morning, Leo. Well, you people aren't in it deep enough to know this yet, but this guy's been hitting the same branch bank maybe two, three times in a row. Not here in L.A., had he? No, not yet. It looks to us like he's just started up his operations here in town. That's the way he worked it down in San Diego. Well, it's easy enough to figure. If he got a teller in some bank to go along with him, someone who didn't suspect him, and since the victims reported so late, he could get away with it at least that many times at the same bank, couldn't he? Yeah. If people report missing mail immediately, it'd make it a lot tougher for the thief. That last name on him still good, Harvey Fletcher? That's what we're going on, yeah. We've got bulletins out to all the banks carrying that description on him, and he changed earlier. WMA, average build, 150, 160 pounds, gray eyes, about 32 to 35, well-dressed, carries a briefcase, likable personality. That's what we got on him. Oh, there's a little something we picked up yesterday from a bank teller. She told us the man had long sideburns, for what it's worth. You might add that. Okay. Don Myers in handwriting has checked through his files, Leo. They haven't got anything on him. And the stats office hasn't been able to make him on his M.O. Now, we know you people are doing everything you can for us. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I wish we could do more. That name, Harvey Fletcher. Of the five checks that we've got on the guy, according to handwriting analysis on him, he's only used that name once. rest of the time, he signs the same last name as the payee's name on the face of the check. He passes himself off as a brother, husband, or some relation to the rightful payee. Yeah, that's what's taking in all those bank tellers, plus a smooth personality. He's cool, collected, all the confidence in the world. Yeah, that figures. Yeah, we got one day before yesterday with a little different twist. Isn't going to help us any, but here's the way he's working it in some cases. Deposits a large check to the victim's account, then he only takes out a small portion in cash. Throws the tellers off even more. Mm. Here's those photo stats, Leo. What's this? Copies of the last five checks that we got on the guy. Oh, yeah, thanks, Harry. Maya says they're all in the same handwriting. Is there anything else we can do for you, Leo? We've got all the banks in the area covered, got bulletins out on them. Well, that's fine. Don't think we've overlooked anything. Patrol units have been alerted. Well, this latest theft of that mailbox panel. It's too bad we can't localize his operations a little. Leo, didn't you say that if he makes a key, that key would fit any number of boxes in the city? We couldn't pin him down to one neighborhood, could we? That's right. That key will work on different mail routes. He probably knows the neighborhood around Alvarado is hot now. He'll leave it alone anyway. It's impossible to stake him out on the actual thefts of the mail. It's too bad we can't get to him through one of the banks when he cashes them. All your man, Par and ours put together couldn't cover all the banks in L.A. at one time, but we've been spot-checking throughout the city. Hoping maybe to tab him just by luck. We might get a break for one of our bulletins. Maybe some tellers found. Well, I'm not sure yet. That's one of the reasons I came over here this morning. But maybe we've got a little something. What's that? Well, a bank out in Westwood phoned us yesterday. A teller thought she recognized the guy from his description. Didn't dawn on her till after the guy had left her window. She rushed out in time to get the license number of his car. Well, maybe it's a break, huh? Yeah, it looks pretty good. The check was drawn on the account of a William E. Scott. And that's the number two victim here in L.A. That's right. You've got the photostat of his checks right there. Yeah, I know. Well, everything seems to fit. 
This check he passed yesterday out in Westwood was probably stolen at the same time as the first one, or at least it came from this Scott's mailbox. That we know. Well, didn't this William Scott report the theft of two checks? I know he didn't to us. Maybe he did to you. No, he didn't. Said he couldn't be sure. He gets quite a few checks through the mail. Owns a lot of stock, gets dividends. Yeah, probably doesn't know when they come each month. Yeah, that's right. He didn't miss the first one until it was way overdue. Might even be others missing. He doesn't know for sure yet. Well, anyway, he's positive on this latest one out in Westwood that the bank teller caught, huh? Sure. As soon as the bank manager called him, he knew he hadn't authorized anybody to cash any of his checks. Does the M.O. seem to match? Well, that's what's got us going on it. it looks real good. Smooth operator. Deposited part of the money, took the balance in cash. The major switch in his operation was the fact that he didn't go to the victim's regular bank as he did on that first check. That sounds good, doesn't it? And we kind of think so. That's the reason I came over here this morning. Conway, our handwriting man, thinks it's the same as the guy we're after. He asked me to check it through Don Myers to be sure. What signature do you use on this last one? Now, that's another part of the M.O. that checks out. You remember on the first check, he forged the victim's name, William Scott? Mm-hmm. And he made it a second-party check by signing the phony name, George Scott, passing himself off as a nephew of the victim. Pretty smart. He goes to this victim's regular bank, and he doesn't take the chance of being tabbed as the payee. He covers by using that nephew gimmick. Huh? Yeah. Uh, this time he goes to a different branch, not the regular branch that the victim deals with, as in the first case. He simply forges the victim's name and lets it go at that. You doing anything on that license number? Well, Ashton and Miller checked it out late yesterday afternoon. They're on it now. Need any help? Well, not so far. I'm interested in what Don Myers has to say about the handwriting. He ought to be through about now, huh? I'll give him a call. Well, thanks, Harry. Hello, Don. Who's this? Uh, this is Elliot. Do you know if Don's checked that stuff through for Inspector Smith yet? Okay, thanks, Lon. No, that's all right. We'll get to him. Don was called out of the office for a minute. That was Sloan. He says he's sure Don's finished with it. Oh, fine. You say when he'll be back? He just dug down to Thad Brown's office for a minute. I'll call down there for you. Oh, that's all right. I'll walk down there myself. I need the exercise. Okay. You and I'll walk on down with you. Oh, swell. Let's go. All right. You fellas will be back here once. Well, sure, as soon as I check with Myers. All right. Uh, which way is it from here? This hall looks the same from one end to the other to me. It's this way, Leo. Oh, okay. This affects you like the federal building does me. I get all turned around up there. Yeah. Those fellas down in San Diego have had a rough go on this thing. Yeah, I was talking to McGuire and Ormsby down there just the other day. They said they were going around in circles on it. They broke a lot of ground for us. Checked out a lot of suspects, cleared them. Checked out all that stuff that Brereton from CII sent down. Yeah. You know how thorough that guy is. It figures they've done a lot of legwork. Uh, Friday, you say you just talked to him down there? Yeah, that's right, Lil. Well, then you know about all those bulletins they got on the guy. Description, exemplars of his handwriting. Mm-hmm. Sent them to every police department in the United States. Oh, it's a big job. Mm-hmm. I'll go get Don. It's right in here. Thanks, Joe. Right. Don? Yeah, Joe. Leo Smith from the post office department is waiting to see you. Right, Joe. Just on my way back to the office here. Fine. Hello, Don. Sorry, Leo. I had to duck out for a minute. Oh, that's all right. Uh, say, did you get a chance to look that sky check over? Yeah, I did. Got a couple of things to show you back in the office. Okay, fine. Was Conway positive on this one? Well, he said he felt we had the right man, but he wanted your opinion to be absolutely sure. I couldn't be positive, but I think maybe he's your man. There's a great similarity, but too much pressure on the downstrokes. The E's, the O's. Just not too sure. They're a little different than some of the previous samples of the guy's handwriting. Uh-huh. I can show you better back at the office. Got a few things for you. Think there's a possibility, Don? Well, let me put it this way. I won't say it is, and I won't say it isn't. 
Let's pick him up and find out for sure. Here we are. Go ahead, fellas. Thank you. Mm. I've blown those things up here. Uh-huh. Call for you, Leo. I'm three. Oh, thanks, Harry. Excuse me. The Smith talking. You did? Uh-huh. We did. All right, look, uh, why don't you bring him down a forgery detail here at the city hall? We'll talk to him here. Right it. Right, thanks. Well, looks like the end of the trail, that was Ashton. He and Miller picked him up. He's our man, admitted the forgery. Looks like San Diego did all the work and we get all the luck. Anyway, we got him. solution of a case, the police officer is always benefited by the legwork of his fellow officers. In this case, the men of the San Diego Police Department, in conjunction with the Post Office Department, had done most of the spade work and the actual apprehension of the suspect appeared to be almost too easy on our end. Even though Ben and I hadn't participated in the physical arrest of the suspect, we felt the same gratification for the speedy solution of the case as did the postal authorities. Monday, March 3rd, 3.27 p.m., Miller and Ashton of the post office department brought the suspect in for questioning. The prisoner was turned over to Inspector Leo Smith. Ben and I sat in on the interrogation. Carver Gleason, that's your true name? Yes, sir, it is. You say you've never been arrested before? No, sir, I never have. Now, you know we're going to check that out. Yes, sir. All right, now let's go over it again. In the same way? That's up to you. We want the truth. I've told you the truth. You asked me questions about stealing mail, about forging checks... You said I was down in San Diego. Well, that's not true. None of it's true. Have you ever stolen from the mails? No, sir, I never have. I know that's a pretty serious offense. What makes you think forging isn't? Is that what you're trying to say? No, I'm not. I didn't say that, but this was the first time I've ever done anything like this. I didn't even think about the consequences. Should have thought about them. When's the last time you were in San Diego? I've never been there. I don't even know for sure where it is. How long have you been in Los Angeles? About three months now. Where's your home? Akron, Ohio. How old did you say you were? 25. And what have you been doing since you got out here? Well, it's just it. Nothing. Can't find a job. Well, how you been getting by? How you been living? Been staying down at the YMCA. Hope Street, I guess it is. What have you been doing for money? Well, my folks gave me a little when I left Akron. Thought I'd have a job by now. I didn't want to write home for any more, so when I found that check, I figured I could get away with it. I needed money, and I cashed it. Where'd you say you found it? Over on, um, well, that street out that way, uh, La Cienega, is that how you said? La, La Cienega, yeah. Now, what were you doing out there? Well, I was answering an ad in the classifieds, trying to find a job. I had to park the car down the street from the place, and on my way back, I found this check on the sidewalk right near the bank on the corner. Where'd you get the car? It's my father's. The car's registered in your name with California plates. How do you explain that? Well, the folks told me when I got to California to go right to the authorities and register the car if I was going to stay so I wouldn't get in any trouble. That's where part of my money went. You got anything else you want to tell us? Well, I did it. I admit that. Mm -hmm. I want to make it up somehow. The check was for $57. I gave the men that arrested me 50 of it, and I spent $7. Yeah, that's all on the record. I did wrong. I'll pay the $7 back. Well, you can take that up with the judge, Gleason. 
Friday. Romero, you want to step outside with me a minute? Yeah, right. Gleason, you wait here with that officer. Yes, sir. What do you think? He's telling the truth. He's not the one we want. How about you, Joe? Yeah, I'll go along with Ben. Well, that makes three of us. Monday, March 3rd, 5 p.m. We went in and checked with Don Myers. In carefully going over exemplars of Carver Gleason's handwriting, he had definitely eliminated him as our suspect. Carver Gleason remained in custody awaiting trial. Three months went by. During this time, the burglaries and forgeries continued. Suspects were picked up, checked out, and released. We got nowhere. Tuesday, July 12th. We received a communication from Chief Adam Jensen of the San Diego Police Department, who stated he was forwarding a radiogram from Chief John W. Polsine of the Milwaukee, Wisconsin Police Department. The radiogram from Chief Polsine stated that his handwriting man in Milwaukee had identified the suspect's handwriting as listed in one of the San Diego bulletins as belonging to Philip E. Holloway. Holloway was arrested two years previous on a reckless driving charge. The physical description of the man matched closely with the one that we'd received on the suspect known to us as Harvey Fletcher. They further stated that although he was at one time a resident of Milwaukee, they had nothing further on him. It was just an outside chance, but we decided that in all probability this could be the suspect's true name, Philip E. Holloway. This information was forwarded to the postal authorities. Ben and I started to check through our channels to determine the whereabouts of the suspect, Philip E. Holloway, with a possible alias of Harvey Fletcher. Well, that's it, Joe. Nothing in any of the phone books. Yeah. Covered everything I can think of. Our records, sheriff's records, nothing from CII, utility companies. Yeah, well, maybe Smith found something on him. We haven't got anything here. Think I'll give him a call, huh, Joe? Yeah, I'd like to know. That's extension 664. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Now, 664. Hello, Inspector Smith, please. How's that? Oh, I see. No, that's all right, thank you. He's on his way over here. He left five minutes ago. I sure hope he's got something. Joe, Ben. Hi, Leo. Hi, Leo. Think maybe we ran it down. Good. How'd you do it? To the Postal Service? Yeah. Didn't figure, did it? Well, we didn't think he'd stay put long enough to have a permanent address. Well, he's been on the move, but we got the last known address on him. Received mail there two days ago. You want to check with Don Myers? He's been working over those exemplars Milwaukee sent us. I just did. Called him about 15 minutes ago. Oh, we just got back from R and I. What do you have to say this time? Well, he and Conway agree all the way this trip. Yeah? Holloway's our man. Together with the postal authorities, Ben and I helped in the 24-hour surveillance placed on the suspect, Philip E. Holloway. Our findings disclosed that he was living in a modest apartment house and he was employed by a local vacuum cleaner company as a door-to-door salesman. This type of occupation would enable anyone to have suspicion-free access to any and all types of home mailboxes. The first three days of the surveillance failed to disclose any further incriminating evidence. Thursday, July 17th, fifth day of the 24-hour surveillance, 2.30 p.m. Holloway came out of his apartment building, got into his car, and drove approximately four miles to the Echo Park Residential District. He parked his car, got out, and went up the steps of a small apartment house. Together with Inspector Leo Smith, Ben and I followed him. You want to pull up here, Ben? This is good. Yeah, all right. Yeah, he's going for that mailbox, isn't he? Yeah. He's got the key. He's opening the panel. Not a worry in the world. Broad daylight. Look at that. He's got all the letters out of the box, got them in his pocket, on his way back to his car. Leo, there's a bank right up there on Sunset, see? Okay, let's stay with him. 
How's it look, Joe? You can see up ahead there. Is he pulling out? Wait a minute. All right, let's go. Better pull up here, huh? Mm-hmm. Now look at that. Just like it was blueprinted. Going right in the bank. Come on. Yeah. Joe, you see him? There he is. Second window. Let's get in line right behind him. Right. Yes, sir, may I help you? Yes, I wonder if you can cash a check for me. Yes, sir, would you endorse it, please? Sure, As you can see, this is one of my mother's checks. I guess I can cash it all right for her. Do you have any identification? I'm sorry, I don't. I'll say I have this envelope to check with mail being collected. Yes, I think that's all right. How would you like this, sir? He doesn't want it anyway, miss. Just hold that check for us, please, Postal Inspector. Yes, sir. I beg your pardon. I believe you're making a mistake here. No, there's no mistake. Come on, step over here. Shake him down. I don't understand all this. That key you used over there on Baxter Street, that the one you made from that panel you stole over on Alvarado about four months ago? know about that, huh? Yeah, we do. I did all right for a while, didn't I? That key angle's a pretty good one, isn't it? There isn't a lock in the world I can't make a key for. We got one in mind you might have trouble with. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 15th, trial was held in United States District Court, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. The suspect, Philip Elwood Holloway, was found guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to 10 years in the federal penitentiary. Five years of his sentence was suspended and he was placed on probation. One of the conditions being that he make restitution of the stolen money. Ladies and gentlemen, accidents of all types kill more persons from 1 to 35 years of age than does any single disease. America's homes and children can best be kept safe if every father, mother, and child develops the personal responsibility to know and observe home safety rules. Make home safety a family affair. Be careful. The life you save may be your own. have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. You are listening to WSHDLP Eastport. We have just heard a 1951 episode of the radio version of Dragnet, called The Big Mailman.
might be fooling, to you it might be fun. This crying I've been doing, well, sweet stuff, now it's done. At first you had me worried, but now I'm good and sore. Cause the postman doesn't call at my door anymore. I know you found another to tell your troubles to, another to believe you the way I used to do. But soon he'll get your number like me, he'll walk the floor when the postman doesn't call at his door anymore. Gonna rip down my mailbox through your picture on the What 
was that I heard you say It's been so long since I heard But I knew he'd keep his word Oh, postman, I knew I'd get some mail today That was Ella Mae Morse with Freddie Slack and his rhythm. Hey, Mr. Postman from 1946. Before that, Riley Shepard and the Santa Fe Rangers with the 1947. The Postman doesn't call up my door anymore. Thank you, dear friends. This concludes today's show. On behalf of around the world's staff of researchers, recording engineers, interns, and Victrola technicians, this is Cracklin' Jane. Thank you, and see you next week. Joe Loudon, a.k.a. The Bass Lady. Join me for Jazz Potpourri, airing Wednesdays from 2.30 to 4.30 p.m., with a repeat on Saturdays from 4 to 6 p.m. From divas to crooners, from the streets of New Orleans to the clubs of Paris, with a little Latin added for spice, Jazz Potpourri is an auditory mix for your listening pleasure. Join me Wednesdays and Saturdays on 93.3 FM, WSHD LP, Eastport. I'm all about that base. Hey, have I got a radio show for you. Old Coasting comes at you twice a week. Thursday at 8, Sunday at 4. Right here on WSHDLP in Eastport, Maine, 93.3 FM. On Bold Coasting, we don't just play the music. Uh, we like to talk about it a little bit, too. It's music and commentary. It's a radio show with liner notes. You kids can ask your parents what that means. Every Saturday night at 7 and again on Tuesdays at 8 for Philly Joe Remarkable's Mad Pad right here on WSHDLP Eastport, Maine, 93.3 on your FM dial. Man, take this crazy pad. Man, it's a mad pad. Listening to WSHDLP Eastport, broadcasting from the hallowed hallways of Shed High School. Tune in Mondays 4 to 6 p.m. for Around the World with your host, Cracklin' Jane, featuring historical 78 RPM recordings from around the world, plus radio dramas from the golden age of radio. If you missed the show, don't despair. There's a repeat broadcast on Fridays, 6 to 8 p.m., and if you miss that, just go to www.cracklinjane.com and download or stream the show at your leisure. 
Come on by Sam's Caffeine Cafe every Tuesday and Thursday morning from 8 until 10 a.m. I'm Sam, the proprietor. I keep all the tables clean. There are no sesame seeds on the floor, no schmutz from the night before, just good music. The first hour, a little bit softer, some Americana, folk, blues, a little bit of jazz. But by 9 o'clock, we are amped up on caffeine. We're playing up-tempo music all hour long. It's a grab bag. It's a fun place to hang out, and we would love to have you. We would. Please come by. 93.3 WSHDLP Eastport. Hi, this is Craig Williams. I've been collecting music first on 45s, then LPs, cassettes, CDs, and digital files for over 40 years. From the obscure to the sublime and the familiar to the mundane, it's pretty much all pop music of just about any era or genre. And I call sharing it with you unabashedly playing favorites. Please tune in every Friday from 1 to 2 p.m. right here on WSHD LP Eastport 93.3 FM. 